Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode Cloud Servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. This episode is brought to you by Rollbar. Rollbar is real-time error monitoring, alerting, and analytics that helps you resolve production errors in minutes. And I talked with Paul Bigger, the founder of CircleCI, a trusted customer of Rollbar, and Paul says they don't deploy a service without installing Rollbar first. It's that crucial to them. We operate at serious scale, and literally the first thing we do when we create a new service is is we install Rollbar in it. Like we, we need to have that visibility, uh, and without that visibility, it would be impossible to run at the scale we do, and certainly with the number of people that we have. Like we're a relatively small team operating a major service, and without the visibility that Rollbar gives us into our exceptions, it just it just wouldn't be possible. All right, if you want to follow in Paul's footsteps and start deploying with confidence today, head to rollbar.com slash changelog. Once again, rollbar.com slash changelog. Welcome to JS Party, a weekly celebration of JavaScript and the web. Tune in live on Thursdays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific at changelaw.com slash live. Join the community and Slack with us in real time during the show at changelaw.com slash community. Follow us on Twitter. We're at JS Party FM. And now on to the show. Welcome back, everyone, to another fun episode of JS Party. Jared here. Joined today by two of my friends, Nick Nisi and Faraz Abuka DJ, but you just know him as Faraz. What's up, guys? Hey, what up? JS Party is up. That's what's up. And we have a fun segment show. Three segments we would like to bring to you. Some of my favorites as I put the show together. Story of the week, which we'll start off with. And then explain it like I'm five. Quick spoiler for that. We're going to explain torrents. We're going to explain cores. I'm not going to explain either of those things. I'm going to learn about them. And then we're going to finish off with shout out. So that's what you can expect from this episode. For those who haven't listened before, story of the week is a moment in time wherein uh, we take turns sharing what we believe is the most important or the biggest story of the week, or it could be an article that we read that was impactful. It can really be anything, but we're talking about things going on or things that have happened recently what they are, why they're important, and what we think about them. So that's what we'll do first, and we'll kick off with Faraz. What is your story of the week, friend? So I think the obvious story of the week is the PureScript NPM installer fiasco, but I think I'll leave that one to you, Jared, because you're gonna. I think you're going to talk about that. So I'll say something related to that, which is not in the JavaScript world, but it's, uh, it's, it's in the cybersecurity, I guess, world. So there was this story about an insider logic bomb that caught my eye. So the idea was this guy who was not a very smart criminal decided that he was going to put a logic bomb inside of some spreadsheet that he created for this company. And the idea is this spreadsheet had some custom scripts inside that would update the orders in the spreadsheet. And he worked there for years, but wanted to basically ensure that they would have to keep hiring him to come and work there further in the future. So he included this little time bomb, basically, that would make the code stop working <laughs> on a certain date. And it's super evil because then the, basically they had to call him up and say, you know, hey, uh, the code isn't working. Um, do you want to come back in here for for some more contracting work? And uh, he just did this repeatedly and kept collecting fees Oh wow! from, from this. So... 
really, really devious. So that's job security right there. It's just, <laughs> you know, the moral of the story is if you're writing software and you need job security, put in a logic bomb. No, do not do this. No, he got in big troubles. Yeah, how do they catch him? Like, how do they figure it out eventually? Because you'd think he would just come back in, do the work, and then leave the bomb there. But do you know how they, they found out? I don't know. Um, I'm not sure how they found out. Um, I, we can link to the story, and there's probably more information there. But it's funny because, you know, he, he was not very smart because he made it so explicit. But I think if if you think about, like, c- complicated software, I mean, this is not an intentional thing, but a lot of complicated, people make a lot of complicated software that ends up having effectively the same outcome and that, you know, the code needs to be constantly worked on and it's <laughs> I would argue it's not that different in a way from what this guy did I mean obviously the intent is important but you know he obviously intended to do bad things but if you if you just think about you know I don't know your decisions that you make with regards to how complicated stuff is and how many moving parts you know you can really make certain decisions that just sort of doom a project to be you know buggy and complicated and need a bunch of work f- forever or you can make decisions that you can choose really solid software, software that's been around for, you know, 10 or 15 years that's like less shiny and less new and um, where we know how it works and you don't have this kind of problem. So, I don't know. <laughs> it's interesting. Reminds me of the guy who outsourced his entire job. Do you guys remember that story? Uh, it's a software developer who secretly outsourced all of his coding work overseas and managed a team of randos to fake his job, I think for like up to a year, this is a while back, but if I remember it, he, 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 and he just wouldn't do anything all day. Uh, he, he turned his job into basically managing this team of remote coders to act like he's doing his job and to get all of his things done. Um, and then he would play solitaire or whatever he would do instead. I remember that. I think the way he got caught was that somebody in IT saw that a bunch of connections were coming from like India or wherever and he didn't work there he was working like in a different city and so they a uh, different, different place and then they they were like what are you doing dude what are you doing man this also makes me wonder about spreadsheets and how much like our spreadsheets turning complete they probably are just first of all they're they're amazing maybe Microsoft Excel maybe the most impactful piece of software in human history thus far for many good reasons and and some entrenched reasons but just the amount of productivity that people can get out of the concept and implementation of a spreadsheet is amazing but you know maybe like too much power to wield if you can like write custom scripts inside of a spreadsheet cell or whatever this guy did in order to hide logic bombs it's like you're supposed to just do like sum and average, you know, these simple calculations, but we're we're writing programs inside of our spreadsheets. Probably would have been saved by just using pages or something where the scripts wouldn't work. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Not pages, numbers. That's numbers. Right. Well, they definitely wouldn't work in pages, but <laughs> it's amazing what people can build with with spreadsheets. I saw a graph recently, it was like a uh, there was a chart. It was showing the popularity of various programming languages uh, relative to each other and uh, they had spreadsheets as, or Excel. Excel was one of the programming languages and it was just all the, basically all the vertical space was Excel. And then like all the programming languages were like these little tiny blips that barely registered on the chart. So it is it is actually quite empowering to a lot of people to be able to just, you know, use Excel and get work done. Yeah, and it's, a, it's an uphill battle to replace such systems with, more appropriate custom software that handles, you know, all the edge cases and, and does things the right way, quote unquote right way, because a lot of reasons, one of which is like, well, you're now constraining the person, whereas they were previously free. 
uh, and they were getting their job done, and now you're replacing their their tool that liberated them and allowed them to be productive with something which is more constrained and by design. But there's a lot of backlash against that. And so, I mean, there's there's entire companies that just go around and they basically replace spreadsheets with databases. You know, they, they write custom, they write web apps that are CRUD apps that are replacing spreadsheets that have been running the business for years. And it's it's a whole industry. I think we should give spreadsheets their due, though. I mean, in some ways, they're just, they are actually just better than programming languages. Like, if you think about how you, you start with the data first, you actually can start typing stuff into boxes. And even if you never write, you know, formula at all, it's just useful. You can like start laying things out and like seeing your data. Whereas with programming, it's like you actually start with the machinery that processes the data and you almost never, you never really see the data like in its intermediate stages. Uh, I guess Brett Victor probably, t- I think I, I might've got this idea from Brett Victor's blog posts, but it's this idea that like programming is sort of this machinery for turning data in, from one format into another format. And you don't actually ever see that happening when you're coding. You, it's all in your mind. Your mind is basically simulating the interpreter. Like you're, you're running, you're like a, trying to be a computer basically when you're looking at your code. You're like imagining what is this line going to do to the data? What is the next line going to do to the data? And you're just stepping through like in your mind. Whereas Excel, you actually just see all the intermediate stages laid out, laid out there because you just you put the, the intermediate cells there and you just see that like you can see that it's working. You know, it's actually better. Yeah. Nick, you do a lot of web apps for companies and stuff. Do you do any data modeling in your work? And if so, do you use Excel as prototypes? I've done it in the past. I mean, tables and rows, good place to start a database table is just to throw some stuff into Excel and then eventually turn it into a data model. I don't. I open Excel and variants as little as I possibly can. I just, I don't know, my eyes just kind of glaze over when I when I look at them. That said, I've been using this new note-taking app that basically has tables as like simpler spreadsheets than Excel as like one of its main features. And kind of going to what Faraz said, it's really blown my mind because you can throw this data into the table, like this notes data into a table, and then you can create different views to view the data as like a Kanban board or as a timeline view or these other, other views. But it's, you're always just working with the same underlying data. And it's something that I would never do on my own. I would never take my notes and, you know, write up something that can show me all of these different ways of, of looking at like information about it. So it's, it's really empowering being able to, to take that and, and then just immediately have it. So working from the data and being able to simply build out what I want to see and get the most information out of that data without having to write an entire application to do it. And I bet it's called Notion. It is. That's hilarious. So we have just started using Notion here around ChangeLog even to collaborate with Adam and Cody and I. Nice. And so I'm, I'm having the exact same experience that you're having. As for literally last week, we just I, I just started using. It. I think Adam was using it before that. I know it was Notion because you sent me a link to a thing, uh, yeah. a page. So there's publicly shareable pages, even though it's a you know internal kind of a thing. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting piece of software. It's one of these things that's so freeform that it's kind of can be kind of the paradox of choice or you know the thing that freezes you. Like okay, where do I go from here? But they provide some templates. But then there's also a lot of that freedom also provides creativity, and it's it's very interesting software, different than other things that I've used. But speaking of spreadsheets, there's a lot of people that are using spreadsheets as their backends. You know, there's Airtable, which is interesting, and then there's also a lot of people that are just building API integrations with Google Sheets and like basically providing web app front ends to Google Sheets. I have done that. Have you done that? Yeah, 
for an RSVP for like a baby shower or something. Just a really simple way to to build out a custom front end and then get the data to uh, where it needs to go without me having to think about it too much. Yeah. Talk about a logic bomb. Throw it in there on your on your baby shower. Boom. It's a boy. All right. Anything else on Faraz's inside logic bombs? Links to these things spoken about in the show notes. We Nick did locate the BBC article all about a U.S. employee outsourcing his job. It was to China. Um, so if you want to read about that, it's in the show notes. Yeah, just kind of transitioning into uh, your article, Jared, I think that this could be the vector by which we might see logic bombs if they ever come to, to JavaScript. I'm linking to a piece of satire, which was written by a fellow named Sebastian K on Medium, where he says, no way to prevent this says only development community where this regularly happens and it's a onion style an onion inspired style i think they do i think the onion does this about gun control laws in the united states after major shootings happen but he's not doing it about gun control he's doing it about uh npm and i'll just read this here in the hours following another package disaster on npm in which a lone developer killed more than dozens of ci builds and caused serious warnings in thousands of others, developers of the only community where this kind of disaster routinely occurs reportedly concluded Monday that there was no way to prevent the disaster from taking place. Quote, this was a terrible tragedy, but sometimes these things just happen, and there's nothing anyone can do to stop them, said full-stack developer Bob Dinald on Reddit, echoing sentiments expressed by tens of millions of individuals who take part in the programming community where over half the world's most infuriating package management disasters have occurred in the past nine years and whose members are 200 times more likely to experience unexpected package updates than those of other established communities. Quote, it's a shame, but what can we do? There really wasn't anything that was going to keep these individuals from snapping and ruining a lot of people's day if that's what they really wanted. At press time, residents of the only big established development community in the world, where roughly two package management disasters have occurred every month for the past four years, were referring to themselves and their situation as, quote, helpless. So there's your piece of satire. For us, you, you were linking this up as a story. I started with a satire. I, don't, I didn't know there was an actual event here this week. So what happened? Tell me about it. There's a, I'm assuming there's a malicious package that crept its way into NPM. I think the word malicious is not the right word to use. Okay. That's what everyone's using, but um, I don't know. That, that's my opinion. So what happened was there was some kind of a disagreement between maintainers of a, of a package called PureScript. And so this guy gave up the package to the other maintainers, but that package still depended upon some of, some of these dependencies that he was in control of. And he added a logic bomb to, I guess, you know, speaking of logic bombs... Uh, it's, it was basically a logic bomb. It just made it, I guess, I mean, you can debate the definition of malicious, but I, I would say you know, it just made it not work. Um, it was like a, a really tricky logic bomb that made the code not work. And I think the word malicious to me implies like that it was, you know, something like, you know, malware intended to like steal information or, you know, steal people's Bitcoin or steal, you know, um, personal information or something like that. And it seems like it was just some kind of a disagreement where that maintainer just wanted to sort of sabotage uh, the other project by making it do nothing. Now, I mean, not, not to say that's not bad, but I think it's, it seems like it should be distinct from a- actual malware because I would hope no one's actual production systems were affected by this. It should have been caught in CI, you know, I mean, if when the logic bomb ran, it would hopefully make the code, you know, the code wouldn't work and it would just be caught in CI. Before, before it goes out to everybody. We should clarify that that developer does claim that his credentials were stolen and he didn't actually intend to do any of that. 
That's right. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. The, the, the post that everybody's sharing around is actually from the other side. It's unclear what actually happened. There's a he said, she said situation. Yeah. So I want to give props to Sebastian for writing a, a nice piece of satire around this. It is a recurring event that we're seeing, you know, with these issues. And he even lists out five or six things um, that have happened recently. Well, maybe recently isn't fair because he goes all the way back to left pad, which is somewhat ancient history at this point, at least in our in our industry. Um, but one piece of like the meta game here, he has an edit on this post. This post is in the show notes if you want to read it. He says, besides some personal threats I received in response to this parody slash sarcastic joke, I've been asked to make suggestions how to fix the problem. Here's an incomplete list. So he goes into some suggested fixes. I don't necessarily want to focus on those. I want to focus on the fact that this guy wrote a, a funny piece of satire and he's getting personal threats about it. Like, what's wrong with us? Can we relax a little bit and have some levity in our community without threatening people i think it's uh i think that's a shame yeah all right so now that i've scolded everybody who <laughs> none of us here did that but it just made frost and nick incredibly uncomfortable like yeah shouldn't have happened let's talk about some tc39 updates that's a good way to segue nick what you got story of the week yeah so actually i'm going to drop this and completely say that the most important thing this week is chrome 76 now supports the uh, media query prefers color scheme dark so there's Safari and Chrome, you can make your website stark in them now. That's huge. <laughs> uh, no, that that is interesting, and that did come out this week in Chrome. Uh, but uh, let's talk about TC39 because some some changes did happen there. First off, some things have moved to stage four, and there's a match all method on strings now that works just like match, but it will return an iterator for all of the matches provided. And then dynamic imports, that's where you call the import keyword as a as a function uh, so that you can await that inside of your code and dynamically import something rather than having to statically import it at the top uh, of your file. And then finally, promise.all settled. So this is a promise that will resolve once all of the par- promises that have been passed to it uh, have settled, meaning they have either resolved or rejected. Uh, so it doesn't care which one. As long as they're, they're all completely resolved, then it will Will go off. So those are some things that are in stage four, which means they will probably be part of ES 2020 next year. Uh, and we'll start seeing them trickle out into browsers. But uh, two more exciting things potentially uh, that moved up to stage three are the nullish coalescing operator and uh, the optional chaining operator. So optional chaining is where you can say, instead of saying foo.bar.baz and having to possibly do a check to make sure that foo exists and then bar exists. So like foo and bar, uh, foo.bar and foo.bar.baz. You can just say foo question mark dot bar question mark dot and it will just return. I think it returns null or maybe undefined if it doesn't exist. So it won't actually throw an error. It'll just exit out. So it's just some syntactic sugar to not have to do all that through your code and make your code a little bit more expressive. And then uh, the nullish coalescing operator is the uh, double question mark, and that will specifically allow you to check for null and undefined uh, and not uh, return for other falsy values like zero or empty string. So you can say, you know, some variable with that you don't know if it's null or undefined, question mark, question mark, and then maybe a string. And it will return that variable on the left side if it's not null or not undefined including if it's zero or empty string. And then if it's null or undefined, it'll return the right side of the strings or the, the right side of that operator. So whatever the string was in, in my example. 
So that's nice to have if you're trying to set a default value for something, right? Where you say this or that, and you don't want it to, you don't want to match on empty string or zero because those might be the valid values sent in, but you do want to match on null or undefined and set those to something that's sane. Any other cool use cases for that? First of all, I love the, would you say that's optional chaining or what's that called? Yeah. Optional chaining. Yeah. So that's a very nice piece of syntax because it, it does become annoying over time to be checking for that foo is here and foo has bar and foo and bar can call bass, you know? Yeah. So that's going to be nice for folks. Um, anything exciting in there for you, for us? Any of these niceties that get you going? I'm excited about the optional chaining as well. Yeah. So you said that's stage three. What does a rollout like that this look like? You know, does it go to stage four and then it's up to the browsers? Is it in some browsers? Help me understand that. Uh, at stage three, uh, I think that's when the the syntax of it. So in this case, the question mark dot and then the double question marks for these operators. That syntax is pretty stable, and now they need some actual real world usage, and so that's where some browsers will implement it. Uh, so we might start seeing this rolling out in the next year. I know optional chaining, but I. Th- think, I'm not sure about the null, the nullish coalescing one, uh, will be coming into a an upcoming version of TypeScript. So you'll be able to use that natively in TypeScript, and then that will backport down to uh, whatever it needs to for uh, to run in, in whatever JavaScript flavor you, you need to run it in. What's TypeScript? I'm unfamiliar. <laughs> well, <laughs> just kidding. No, please, please stop. This episode is brought to you by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean is the simplest cloud platform for developers and teams with products like droplets, spaces, Kubernetes, load balancers, block storage, and pre-built one-click apps. You can deploy, manage, and scale cloud applications faster and more efficiently on DigitalOcean. Whether you're running one virtual machine or 10,000, DigitalOcean makes managing your infrastructure way too easy. Head to do.co slash changelog. Again, do.co slash changelog. All right, we are back and we are excited to explain things to each other as if we were five or at least new to a thing. Uh, some of us take this quite literally and apply a five-year-old metaphor. Others just try to explain technology in a way that a neophyte or a new person could learn it. So let's see the way Nick tackles cores. Nick, explain it like we're five. Cores. All right. So cores, uh, like Apple cores. No. Cores as in cross-origin resource sharing is the topic I'm going to try and explain to a five-year-old. Although I, I probably won't be able to go that far with it because... You do have to know a little bit about how that network requests can be made from websites and things. Um, What's a network request? <laughs> What's a website? Yeah. So starting there, that, that's the problem with this. It's like you, you have to start from like, you know, this is silicon. So it's this way of being able to access a server that is not on the same domain as the, the location of the website. And this is something that you couldn't previously do. For example, if I had some JavaScript on nicknisi.com uh, and I wanted to pull in something from the changelog website, I wouldn't be able to do an AJAX request to the changelog website and go grab that. So some workarounds were being made, uh, things like JSONP or J 
JSON with padding, I think, where I could basically request, put a script tag on my page that would load something from the changelog website. And the changelog website would be aware of this, that I was trying to do this. And they would send me a script that was basically just calling a method that I had told them to call and passing data to that method. And then I could grab the data and use that because it would call my method back when the, the script actually loads and be able to run with that. And that's all well and good for sites that you can trust, which is probably no site ever, because you're, you're willingly just pulling in a script that can load onto your page and do anything. And so it can be dangerous. And then you also have the problem of the site being down and that would make the script uh, load fail and all of that. So a simpler method was developed called CORS or cross-origin resource sharing. And this allows you to make a request to another site on the internet from your page in as safe of a way as possible. And so what it does is it adds in a bunch of checks beforehand to check to see if, if the server will actually allow this. And if not, then nothing happens. Um, but if the server will allow it, then it has a whole bunch of other checks. And so the main thing that happens when you try and make a cores request is your browser will add a header to your request and the header will be origin and it will be whatever your site is. So maybe nicknisi.com that would be set as the origin. And that's nothing I can change. That would be set by Chrome itself. And then it would make a request to changelog.com. And changelog.com, if they want to accept cores requests, they have to respond with an access control allow origin header that matches nicknisi.com or has an asterisk in there, meaning that it matches everything. And then that way I can make requests between them. So this is a way for servers to lock that down and say, nope, we won't do any of this uh, because we won't send that header back. But otherwise, if they want to accept that, then they can do that. And they can specifically do that for just specific sites, which is really cool. And all of this is out of the hands of the JavaScript developer in the browser. This is happening at the browser level. So Chrome is adding in these headers and doing all of this for you. But there, it does get a little bit more complicated because there are two kinds of requests that you can make. There's a simple request and a pre-flooded request. And so a simple request would be a request that is using the method get, head, or post, and is using only a subset of headers. So things like content language, content type, uh, and with content type, uh, only three different content types. So that's multi-port form data, form URL encoded, and text plane. And then also one that is not setting up a upload listener. So listening for uploads or anything like that. If it matches all of that, then the browser will send the origin with that request. And then the server can respond with the access control allow origin and the data that they want to respond with. And all is well and good. But if I wanted to, for example, make a put request to the changelog.com from my website, I can't do that because that's not one of the simple methods. So it would have to be a pre-flooded request. And so what would happen is the browser would send an options request to changelog.com first. And then that would say, what are my options, changelog? Can I make any kind of requests or not? And then changelog can respond to that options with the, the proper access control allow origin. And if I was trying to make a put request, uh, it could respond with another header, access control allow methods and have put in that. And then... Uh, that would say, yes, you can make the put, and then I can make my request after that. So it's actually two requests that end up happening. And again, this is all outside of 
a JavaScript developer. The browser is making this request first, and then it will make the request that you asked it to. If the server comes back and says, no, I don't accept that, then your request just fails, and it doesn't actually try and make the second request. So it's just a way of controlling what a, uh, a server can respond to or wants to respond to, and a way for the browser to make those requests in a safer way as possible. Well done, Faraz. You mentioned in, in the break that you're teaching cores is, or going to be teaching cores. Is this uh, along the lines of the way you explain it? Do you have any questions around that? Or what are your thoughts? Uh, I mean, one obvious question would be like, why doesn't the browser require cores for putting an image in a page or putting a script in a page? Because, you know, in those cases, you know, you can just link to another site and there's no, there's no issue. And it makes me, yeah. you know, the sort of obvious question is like, why the difference between that and other types of requests? My, I have no no idea why. But <laughs> no idea. <laughs> immediately the thing that comes to my head is legacy reasons. <laughs> yeah, I think that's pretty much the reason. <laughs> but <laughs> it would be interesting to have someone who had the full context of the historical perspective to share that. So it's it's in place with JSON. So if I wanted to grab some JSON off another website, I couldn't do that. Fonts, definitely. Uh, many of us have had cores problems with trying to load fonts off of S3, uh, our web fonts. And they won't load until you go into your S3 bucket and add the cores headers to the server response. Um, so web fonts, get requests to web fonts are in there. JSON's in there. Image, it makes sense why you wouldn't need images because there's no, I mean, I'm sure for us you can <laughs> debunk this, but an image should not have any sort of ability to execute malicious things. I mean, maybe there's if there's vulnerabilities in the formats themselves, I guess. So there's there's one there's one thing that can happen with images, which is that so the browser automatically attaches cookies to requests to a site. So if I were to embed like let's say mail.google.com slash uh, some button image that Google uses, the browser will helpfully attach my Google cookies to that request, and that might change the type of image that the server sends back. So if I'm logged in it might send back one image. And if I'm not logged in, it might send back another image. So that's why the browser doesn't actually let you see the contents of the response. So I can't actually look at the bits that make up the returned image. I can only embed it in the page. So the user will see, you know, one image or the other image, but I'm not supposed to be able to sort of, a site isn't supposed to be able to sort of go into the image and see what it is. If that Glean makes sense. the information out of it. Yeah, because that's kind of a data leak situation, right? You're you're potentially linking information if you're logged in versus non. In mm -hmm. that example, and that's an argument for, yeah, it just they could change the way core. The problem is they can't break old websites, right? Could you fix this with a content security policy, or or make things more secure on your site by restricting specifically where scripts can run from? I think one one thing is you can look at the size of the image. Say the images that the Google returns are different sizes depending on whether you're logged in or not. Now I can I can actually look at how much the other elements on the page were pushed left or right, you know, and then I can figure out whether you're logged in or not. So you yeah you really do want to prevent you would want to prevent the image from being loaded entirely, or to at least prevent the cookies from being attached to it. And there are different specs for both of those things. Yeah, I'm trying to find a link. I I could have swore that I saw a project on GitHub that was a complete chat client uh, over GIFs. So it was just never fully resolving the GIF and being able to send data through that but I can't find it. That sounds like a really good mad science. 
There is a GIF out there that you'll never resolve. It's called the Hasselhoffian recursion. I'll just leave it at that. You can go out in there and look for that GIF. It will never resolve, but uh, you might enjoy it or you might hate it. Let's move on. Faraz, you're going to explain. Oh, you, you flipped the script on me. You're going to explain the Zoom hack and DNS rebinding, which is not what this document said a few minutes ago. So I'm excited now because you must be into this one. Uh, explain the Zoom hack to us. We happen to be using Zoom as we speak. So hopefully, yeah, hopefully it's secure now. Uh, but go ahead, like we're five, please. Uh, I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just thought it would dovetail nicely with Nick's excellent explanation, of course. Absolutely. Because I think that to understand this stuff, you end up needing to explain cores. And since he's already done that, we can skip, we can skip that. Yeah, so what happened with the Zoom chat app was that they installed a server on everyone's computer who has installed the Zoom chat program. And that server is uh, just like a server that's listening on localhost on some port number, just like uh, just like when you're developing a website locally. You know, no different. It's just a server that's running on the computer that you know anyone who sort of can connect to your computer and knows the port can uh, visit to see this, this server basically to see the server response. And what they did wrong was, first of all, they didn't use cores. So that means that any website on the internet can send a request to this server. So you could be on, you know attacker.com and that site attacker.com can include let's say um, an image tag in their page and make the the source of the image be this local zoom web server and the browser will happily make an http request to that server and uh, you know get back the response and attempt to show it as an image now it might not actually i mean it's probably not going to actually render a valid image in that case but that was still a, that that's still the attack this attacker's website making a request to a server on your computer and the question then is what can that server actually do and in the case of the zoom server turns out it could join you into a meeting and uh, it would automatically turn on your mic and camera uh, in that meeting uh, and so in theory, you could be on a site that you don't want people to know you're on and be auto-joined into a meeting like within, you know, a second or two. And now this site has literally gets a live feed of your face and, you know, maybe you don't want to share that. So um, it's pretty bad. This was made worse by the fact that they they didn't actually use cores, which would have let them at least sort of, they, what they could have done is they could say, okay, this request is coming from attacker.com, right? We're going to not actually... Well, so this is actually slightly different than Cores. So Cores, Cores says you basically return the response to the browser and you tell the browser, by the way, I only want to allow these domains to use this resource. And then the browser enforces that for you. This is why I think it's, uh, I wanted to talk about this Zoom hack because it's an interesting a lesson in actually what Cores can do and what Cores can't do. What they should have done in that case is ask the question, which website is making this request to us? Uh, and it turns out actually Cores doesn't help you there. Cores is, you know, you just you just say, like I was saying, Cores just says, I want this site to be able to see the contents of this resource or not. Um, and so what you really want to do is look at a different HTTP header that's included automatically by the browser in the HTTP request. And that's the host header. That'd be the refer, uh, right? Uh, now I'm confusing myself. This stuff is confusing. <laughs> no, it's the referrer header, I believe, that tells you wh where the request is coming from. Now, it may be the case that Zoom wants to allow any website to try to join you into a meeting, right? Maybe that's like a product decision that they want to make. But yeah, I mean, then they should, they should prompt you before they join you into the meeting, right? 
I think what they really wanted to do was to say, no, 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 you have to visit a Zoom URL and then only the Zoom site can join you into a meeting. So only the Zoom site should be able to tell the local Zoom web server to open up the Zoom app for you. And if that's what they wanted to do, then what they really need to look at is the source of the request, right? They need to see that it's coming from, um, from, uh, from the Zoom website. Which that was the point of the feature. So you get an email, hey, this person's invited you to a Zoom meeting, and there would be a link in the email, and it would you open the link, it would take you to Zoom's website, and that would, if you had the app installed, it would launch your Zoom meeting automatically using that web server, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. So that, that was the intent, which is a legitimate feature. I mean, it's a desirable feature, apparently. I mean, I've used it, it works, you click on the thing, it opens the thing. They wanted to build it for their customers, and so that seemed like they had good intentions. But it was the benefit far was far outweighed by the drawbacks of having this. You're basically installing a backdoor, and in so far as there is a locally accessible web server now on these people's computer, which previously wasn't there, and which could be accessed uh, remotely or locally. Yeah, and I think I'll skip explaining DNS rebinding because I actually <laughs> think that is a longer explanation than I realized. Um, but it is very interesting. It's a very weird, interesting attack that um, that I think a lot of developers don't know about. Maybe maybe in a, on a future episode. Okay, so stay <laughs> tuned for DNS rebinding. Maybe we'll ho- hook up a link for those interested to read, and then they can critique Faraz's future explanation of what DNS rebinding is. But for now, that's it. We totally failed. We totally failed at explaining <laughs> to five-year-olds. I don't even think I would understand what I said. So, <laughs> well, let's let's ask the listener. Did we at least succeed in explaining it to whatever age you are, listener? Um, let us know on Twitter, JS Party FM, or hit uh, discuss this in Changelog News in your show notes. It'll hit you up on the the JS Party page on Changelog.com, where you can post a comment. Maybe uh, go in there and explain these things better than we did. Or tell us what DNS rebinding is, because I have no idea. Uh, that's it for Explain It Like I'm Five. This episode is brought to you by cross-browser testing of SmartBear, the innovator behind the tools that make it easier for you to create better software faster. If you're building a website and don't know how it's going to render across different browsers or even mobile devices, you'll want to give this tool a shot. It's the only all-in-one testing platform that lets you run automated, visual, and manual UI tests across thousands of real desktop and mobile browsers. Make sure every experience is perfect for everyone who uses your site and it's easy and completely free to try check it out at crossbrowsertesting.com slash changelog again crossbrowsertesting.com slash changelog all right it is time for our shout outs this is where we Give shout-outs to people or projects that we think deserve recognition. I like to give a shout-out to somebody whose name is difficult for me, uh, but she's an awesome person. Hong Fook Dang. Hong Dang. Uh, I think she's HP Dang on Twitter and GitHub. We met her at OzCon. She was walking around the show floor with uh, these cool little hardware scrolling marquees that were programmable via Bluetooth. And she was out telling people about 
a community called FOSS Asia. So shout out to Hong and FOSS Asia. If you haven't heard of FOSS Asia, you're a lot like I was. It is the largest, let me get this right. Actually, they just scrolled their marquee. Oh, don't we all hate the scrolling marquees? What are they called uh, when they slide in a new picture? Carousels. We all hate carousels. FOSS Asia has one. That Don't hold that against them. It's just a thing. But their statement is bringing together an inspiring community across borders and ages to form a better future with open technologies and ICT. This is a large, large, I can't remember the number, but I think it's like 30,000 people strong group of Asian software developers. I think they are out of Singapore uh, specifically, but all over Asia where they get together and they're doing open source stuff. And they're doing a lot of hardware hacking. They have a lot of software projects. And it's a group of people that I had never even heard of as a member of the, maybe say the, the Western United, the Western uh, open source community. And there's a huge gap in between the East and the West, both, both geographically as well as, uh, you know, with water. And unfortunately, that means there's a gap in our community where we can hopefully close that and get to know each other. That's what Hong was at OSCON doing was just around telling people about FOSS Asia. So there's lots of different ways of getting involved. I think they're up to cool stuff. They have a lot of stuff on GitHub. So check out FOSSAsia.org. Shout out to Hong for doing the yeoman's work of getting out there and uh, telling people in the United States about this community, which is large and growing. So check them out and uh, say hi. Okay, shout outs. Frost, you're up. So I want to shout out NeoCities which is a amazing website that's bringing back GeoCities style sites. So they give you free website hosting uh, with zero ads and uh, they let you put whatever you want up there. So it's just like static web hosting. And there's a lot of interesting like quirky little sites on there. They, they say uh, the way they put it is they're bringing back the lost individual creativity of the web, which is pretty cool. Yeah. And the, the guy who uh, created it, his name's Kyle Drake, really nice guy. He was really sad that you know, when GeoCities was uh, taken down. And um, he actually has a related project to bring back up uh, an archive of all of the GeoCities sites that folks were able to save before GeoCities was shut down. Uh, and I think right now all that stuff is on the Internet Archive, but it's not very easy to browse. So he's, uh, he's about to release a new site called geocities.gallery, which lets you uh, peruse a huge chunk of the original GeoCities sites. And... Uh, I actually helped him get the MIDI's working again using uh, my my MIDI JavaScript library. So now you get the full glory of the. Uh, and he also had to add back the blink tag because I think that was that one was um, deprecated and removed. <laughs> so uh, yeah, it's it's pretty cool. So shout outs to uh, Kyle Drake and NeoCities and GeoCities Gallery. It's really cool. So when you do you know if you build a NeoCities site, are you basically just uh, HTML? You know, doing stuff right there in the browser, how to, much like GeoCities was, or uh, is it work differently than that? It has an in-browser editor. Uh, you can just type the HTML right in, and cool. uh, it doesn't really get more complicated than that. So, it does force people to. It, it does expose people to HTML, which is, uh, of course, like one of the benefits, actually. I think of of this approach. Very cool. I remember when GeoCities was shutting down, and I don't know if Kyle Drake the name rings a bell, but there was somebody who went and crawled the entirety of GeoCities, and I think he eventually turned it over to archive.org, and maybe it was Kyle, but I remember that being a thing, and people were supporting him because, like, 
was it Yahoo that owned GeoCities? They were like literally taking the thing down. Like it had existed in broken window fashion for years. And it's like, this is actually going to disappear off the internet. And there was a, a movement to save GeoCities. It was a, a fun thing back in the day. I think it ended up on archive.org. All right, Nick, your turn. Yeah. So my shout out goes to uh, NeoClyde on GitHub uh, and specifically uh, their project coc.invim. Uh, and it's a project that I've been using for the past couple of weeks, and it's just amazing. COC stands for the Conqueror of Completion, and it's an IntelliSense completion plugin for Vim that makes full use of the language server protocol from VS Code. And that means that you can take VS Code plugins that, that tie into that and port them to Vim so that you can use them uh, straight within Vim. And it's really cool. So obviously the main plugin uh, that I, I use within there is the TS server one. So I get uh, the exact same completion uh, that I would get from from using VS Code. I get it straight in Vim. And then there's other ones like Prettier, so it'll just automatically uh, run Prettier on my code. Like when I save, there's a, a plugin that will, when I'm in, specifically in like a git commit message in Vim uh, and I type the pound sign, it will give me a dropdown of all of the issues that are open on that repository so I can autocomplete those. And there's just several other plugins available. There's an emoji plugin, but it, it just really is so cool being able to take all of this cool hotness from VS Code and bring it over to the one true editor. <laughs> you mean Adam? No. <laughs> yes. So NeoVim, is this, so this is written in TypeScript. Does this work with regular Vim? What's NeoVim? Do you need to use NeoVim and not regular Vim here? Uh, NeoVim is uh, actually not written in TypeScript. It's written in... Oh man, I don't even know. But it's a more modern version of Vim, meaning that they're, the, the community is a little more open to contributions and to changes, whereas earlier Vim was kind of, they're kind of slowing down in, in some aspects. Like there was no way to really run uh, asynchronous jobs. So NeoVim came along and they dropped support for a bunch of old cruft, like, you know, not needing to run on old Solaris systems, for example. I don't, I don't know if that's actually the case, but being able to drop that, all of that cruft um, makes the project lighter and makes con uh, contributing and welcoming new contributors much easier. And then they added their own async job support. And then that kind of... That got Vim going again, right? Yeah. And so they, they came up with a different approach to async jobs. So now there's like plugins have to support both. Yeah. Uh, but for the most part, as just an end user, Vim, uh, NeoVim seems much faster. Or it, it did, at least when I started. I haven't used Vim 8 very much to say that it's uh, gotten much better. I'm sure it has, but uh, I've just still kind of stuck with NeoVim because of plugins like this and others. But I have basically aliased Vim to NeoVim or to NVim uh, in my shell just so I don't lose that muscle memory in case I ever switch back. I just type Vim for everything. Got to keep your, keep your options open there. So NeoVim written mostly in C, the 44% of the repo is VimScript though. So uh, there's also some Lua sprinkled in there. That being said, the coc.nvim is TypeScript. So does NeoVim add some sort of like a JavaScript way of writing these things? Because it used to be you had to write VimScript to do Vim plugins, but maybe yeah. NeoVim enables that? It, it enables better support for plugins written in other languages. So Gotcha. Um, and then there's packages like on NPM, there's a NeoVim package and there's a, a Py NVim package uh, for Python. And then you can write your plugins and they can uh, more easily talk 
to the native Vim script that's running in your in Vim itself. So you can make plugins that work uh, much better throughout all of that. I'm kind of not, I, I haven't written a plugin, so I'm not, uh, I'm just kind of talking and not 100% <laughs> sure of myself here, but yeah. Well, that could be our motto here at JS Party. We're not 100% sure, but we're just kind of talking. Awesome. Well, shout outs uh, is always fun. We love to give respect to people out there doing cool things. And so uh, thank you to FOSS Asia, to NeoCities, and to coc.nvim. Links to those things in the show notes. If you use them or you found them from this show, uh, let them know. Tell them hi out there on the internet. Thank them for their uh, the things they do and let them know you heard about them here on JS Party. Well, that's our show for this week. Stay tuned next week. It's a big one. We got another debate show. We're going to be talking modern JS tooling. Is modern JS tooling too complicated? Yup. Nope. You find out next week when Divya and Michael face off against Faros and Chris to answer that question. We'll see you next time. All right. Thank you for tuning in to JS Party this week. Tune in live on Thursdays at 1 p.m. U.S. Eastern at changelaw.com slash live. Join the community and Slack with us in real time during the shows. Head to changelaw.com slash community. And do us a favor, share this show with a friend or you doesn't have a podcast, go into Overcast and favorite it. And thank you to Fastly, our bandwidth partner. Head to Fastly.com to learn more. And we move fast to fix things around here at ChangeLog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. We're hosted on Linode Cloud Servers. Head to Linode.com slash ChangeLog. Check them out and support this show. Our music is produced by Breakmaster Cylinder. And you can find more shows just like this at ChangeLog.com. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next week. Hey, guess what? Brain Science is officially launched. Episode number one is on the feed right now. So head to changelaw.com slash brain science to listen, to subscribe, and to join us on this journey of exploring the human mind. Once again, changelaw.com slash brain science or search for brain science in your favorite podcast app.